the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right. That means time once again to say good afternoon. Welcome. First day of February, in case you weren't keeping count. And uh, delight to have you with us today for another edition of Lifeline. Here keeping you company right up until 7 o'clock tonight. Coming up a little bit later on, we've got the Church of the Week. We'll tell you more about that in uh, in a little bit. In the meanwhile, Mr. Zuckerberg, back on Capitol Hill yet once again. Um, the head of Instagram, Facebook, uh, what else, WhatsApp, and a growing list of others um, testifying in hearings this week that they're trying to do more than any other company to suspend accounts, to trade in abusive content. And, of course, one of the big concerns raised by Texas Senator Ted Cruz, Instagram, that has been allowing child abuse. Now, is this a question of the algorithm not properly identifying? Do they not have enough individuals that are keeping an eye on things of this sort? Certainly that's been the accusation towards um, the likes of people like Mr. Musk and X. So what of the whole issue of the impact of social media, not only on the broader sense of culture and society today, but more specifically as it relates to children. Let's get some insights now about these and other stories related. Jim Chernowski joins us. James is a senior policy analyst in technology and innovation at Americans for Prosperity. James, once again, great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Craig. Great to be here. Let's talk about this. I know that there have been ongoing, off-again, on-again hearings on Capitol Hill related to who's allowing what to take place, concerns years ago over uh, the degree to which social media played a role in uh, trying to sway or uh, uh, push elections towards uh, the favor of whatever party or candidate they seem to be in favor of. Now, more recently, of course, uh, ongoing relations to or concerns rather over things things like uh, content on these platforms that is racial in nature. Now, these hearings in the past week over concerns about the impact on children. What do you make of this? I mean, is it too little too late? Is it too heavy handed? Can we rely on the marketplace to police itself or do we need more draconian rules out of Washington, D.C.? Yeah, that's a great question, Craig. And I think that that's the thing that Congress has been struggling with for years because um, there really isn't a silver bullet solution for tackling the litany of issues that you kind of described, whether it's surrounding kids and teen mental health or drugs or, um, or you know, uh, child sexual abuse material. There's all kinds of issues that occur online in these platforms. And it's incredibly difficult because the Internet is basically one big medium that we all share. It's a borderless thing. Um, so there's a lot of content that originates outside the borders of the United States that makes it more difficult to tackle. Um, you know, there's a law enforcement aspect to this where 
the amount of things that these companies are reported in terms of child sexual abuse material to law enforcement is uh, a lot more significant than law enforcement has the resources and time to dedicate towards tackling those issues. And on teen mental health, I think that that's just really a complicated issue because there's a litany of things that are, you know, attributable to kids' mental health outcomes. And I think that you can look at just the way that society has changed over the last 20 years, starting with the basic fact that, you know, it's increasingly okay for people to go and say that they are, in fact, not okay. So I think that there's a lot of things that go on here that require a lot more nuance and depth. Um, unfortunately, with that hearing, like most hearings in Congress, you see a little bit more grandstanding than actual substance. And I think that that, that kind of is an unfortunate thing because I do think that the companies don't want to go and see any kind of negative or adverse things happening on their platforms. Uh, I think they want to be part of the solution, but it's, it's admittedly a very hard uh, you know, needle to thread there, if you will, right? So it takes a lot of resources and energy to come to, you know, good solutions here that are within the confines of the Constitution. I guess one of the big overriding, overarching concerns is, and uh, James, you alluded to this, the notion that we've got people both in country and out of country that participate actively on these platforms. If you can believe the numbers published by uh, Meta and Facebook, 3.3 billion users, that's billion with a B that engage with Facebook, the largest social media platform in the globe. And you think about the degree to which people are engaged. Sometimes it's, you know, 10, 20 times a day. Here's what I had for lunch. Here's what I'm having for dinner. Here's where I took a walk. All this kind of stuff. You know, we talk about, well, there needs to be better policing and then concerns about things slipping through. For example, in the last week, uh, this uh, individual that apparently beheaded his own father and posted the video on Facebook and it had more than 5,000 views before it got taken down. That says to me that the so-called algorithms working in the background to try and automatically detect this and prevent it from getting posted or, or getting viewed clearly don't work. And I have to ask the question, with 3.3 billion users, how can we ever possibly expect there to be any degree of serious police I mean, it would take hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that would be working for the company doing nothing but passing judgment and inspection on every single post, every single video. It just seems to me it's beyond the pale. Yeah, no, and I mean, think of it this way. If you want to know the scariest thing is that on top of the algorithms that are supposed to help Facebook with dealing with a lot of this content, they employ over 30,000 content moderators, too, from last I remember. Um, looking over content uh, that the algorithm can't necessarily go and do on its own. And 5,000 views is certainly a lot on the video that you referenced for that horrible uh, act that that person chose to post online. But when we're talking about relative to like everything else that gets posted online, that's really like a blip on the radar. Um, you know, there are people that post on Twitter that get millions of views. Hello, Mr. Musk. Uh, and others that certainly get a lot more exposure and, and, and whatnot. So those kinds of pieces of content, I think, certainly get bumped to the top in terms of scrutiny. And therefore, you, you know, when you have those limited resources, it's hard to catch the thing that only has 5,000 views or, you know, it's shared in a more intimate circle, right? Um, and then there's also the trade-off, too, that comes in terms of, like, people's privacy um, when we're saying, like, how closely do you want these companies to be, like, looking into your every single detail or image or post that you're putting on? Um, you know, we've had detailed examples of the government going and abusing these kinds of, uh, you know, authorities to spy on Americans. And that's by buying metadata, certainly that gets produced by these, these uh, technology platforms as well. Um, and then on top of that, you have the companies getting pressure from the government when it comes to making certain decisions about content. 
on their platforms, as we're going to see getting debated in, in the Supreme Court this spring uh, in Murphy v. Missouri, right? So, again, it's a really fine line to walk here in terms of trying to deal with these very sensitive but very real problems. Well, and this is why, you know, and added to that, of course, uh, ways in which people figure mannerisms in which they can sort of skirt the rules or regulations so that if the algorithm is looking for certain phrases or certain words, certain language, that it can capture it and shut things down. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you can use a double entendre and other means to get your point across. While the algorithm may be not smart enough to catch it, the average bear out there will catch it. The other concern, and you've just alluded to it, and that is beyond just the, the enormity of the challenge, how gargantuan it is. There's a fair amount of this that I think kind of fits into that mushy middle where, what's the old phrase? I, I, I don't know what, I can't explain to you what pornography is, but I know it when I see it, right? That, yeah. that notion that there's a very fine line between what is truly pornographic or offensive or racist or mm-hmm. insightful language versus what might be simply a difference of opinion or a, a you know opposing political view and how do we train an algorithm to know the difference and I guess therein lies the real challenge here that it's a gargantuan task and the rules of engagement can be sort of uh, how shall we say a, 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 a sliding or movable goalpost when yeah. it comes to human beings making on the fly judgment calls I think you couldn't have said it better yourself there, Craig. I think that the reality is, is that imagine sitting in the chair of a content moderator and you basically have under a minute to look at these pieces of content and evaluate whether or not it violates the company's policies around certain types of content, right? And you have under a minute and then you got to be on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And these are on average. And the bulk of the gruesome stuff that you kind of reference doesn't even make it past the algorithmic filters. And then human people try and take down the rest, too. So we really do have a quite, uh, you know, germane experience online relative to other places. Um, and it's because of those investments that these companies have made. But that being said, it is, it is never perfect. And as I've been saying about these platforms basically over the last decade, they've been stuck in an impossibility paradigm because no matter what they do, they're going to fail on some bar or metric because the goalposts have got moved somewhere. And they're going to be making somebody angry no matter what, right? So. Um, it puts them in an impossible situation, and they're just doing the best they can, given the limited resources and time that they can go and dedicate towards these kinds of things, while also trying to promote a good product and service that you know people want to continue to use. So, so with that said, then James, let me sort of anticipate what uh, folks eavesdropping on our conversation this afternoon might be already thinking to themselves, and that is, okay, we get the fact that it's overwhelming, gargantuan, huge judgment calls, a near impossibility, and at the end of the day. Do we really want to allow uh, the public, or the, sorry, the private sector to make these kinds of judgment calls? What we need is good regulation. Okay, let's begin with that premise that we have a number of actors that would wish to weigh in on this, whether you're talking about at the, the bigger scale, be it at the federal level here in the United States or at the European Union level. And then what about individual yeah. states and they that want to weigh in and say, you know, it comes down to a matter of community standards. Well, a state like Missouri may not necessarily, in the broadest sense, share the same quote-unquote community standards that a state like uh, California or New York might. So then how do we sort of divvy up the <laughs> the spoils here when you've got so many that want to weigh in with an opinion? Yeah. Observe the state yeah. of California. 
who is now suggesting that legislators putting together a bill that requires social media companies to shut off these algorithms that are designed to push certain types of information or videos or content um, to young people because they're all about engagement, right? At the end of the day, what are they selling? You, you're the product. It's not about anything else other than any of these social media companies. The big product that they sell is you. And of course, engagement for young people and keep Keeping them, keeping them uh, plugged in and coming back for more, so to speak. Well, that's what the platforms are all about. Now, the state of California is suggesting that no, we're gonna, we're going to. Um take steps in order to try and derail that. But just how effective might that be? Let's explore that part of the equation as our conversation with Jim Chernowski, James Chernowski, Senior Policy Analyst in Technology and Innovation at Americans for Prosperity. We take a time out. We'll come back to more of this debate, this discussion, as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So as we're sort of unpacking the complexity of the impact of social media on society in general, young people today, our voting habits, general public opinion, et cetera, et cetera, there has been a move afoot in the state of California to um, come up with a requirement where essentially force social media companies to shut off the so-called algorithms that are in fact designed to encourage further engagement. You maybe even see this uh, yourself. You Google something that you're interested in, and then this, let's say you want to buy a new barbecue, so you Google home barbecues, and before you know it, days, weeks afterwards, isn't that odd? As you go and take a look at news or check your email, whatever it might be, you keep seeing ads for barbecues. It's not by accident at all. But I have to wonder, as we're talking with James Chernowski, Senior poly, Policy Analyst in Technology and Innovation, at Americans for Prosperity, whether or not making a change in the so-called feed style of the algorithm that's that's designed to essentially track behavior and then to use patterns that they sort of ascertain as a means of feeding content that will keep a young person engaged, whether or not saying that they're going to shut down the capacity of the, um, the system to monitor that and therefore force or encourage that kind of engagement, whether or not that is even going to be successful, given how many parameters that are potentially here that you could have a person who lies about their age, for example. How does that even work? Yeah, that's a great question, Craig. And I think that the reality is, as you kind of highlighted at the back half, is that with many of these proposals, the daunting task that then becomes is, how do you go and even enforce something like this? In an era that has the advent of VPNs and people being willing to circumvent uh, these kinds of restrictions where wherever they exist, um, it does create a whole new kind of barrier. Um, and I actually think that the greatest example that I can think of this that we've seen kind of play out is in, in conservative states, we've had certain conservative states don't require age verification to go and look at porn- pornography sites, right? Um, which, you know, at face value might sound reasonable given pornographic content is adult content. You would not want a minor to go and see that. But what ended up happening is that the second that those those bills passed and were signed into law, by their respective governors, you saw the Google searches for VPN skyrocket, um, literally skyrocket the day after it was done um, because people saw the, the what was going on. And uh, actually, I remember seeing a state lawmaker in one state tweet about how he had somebody go and reach out to him complaining about this particular bill that they had just passed that was requiring age requirements on accessing pornographic sites. Now, 
with social media, it's a little bit different, obviously, because that's not the same kind of content. Um, and kids do have, um, you know, rights to access just as much as the next one. I think that really what this ultimately serves as a good reminder for is that nothing substitutes good parenting and good digital literacy that can be done both at school and at home for parents and kids alike. And that's really where we need to go and put our, our investment and our time in because nothing substitutes that well enough. Um, and really, I think the last thing that we want to be doing is allowing and empowering uh, the state legislature of California to become the parent of your child any more than they already want to be. Um, so I think that that's something that we have to keep in the back of our mind as we have these conversations. Of course, the challenge with all of this is that it's assuming that parents are going to not only take the time to help educate the kids and be engaged when often they themselves get get manipulated by uh, social media and online experiences. And so I, I guess the overarching question then, James, is how do we ourselves better understand the way all this works? I mean, it's, it's difficult for me to warn my son or daughter about the dangers that are lurking out there if I myself as a parent don't fully comprehend this. Yeah, and I, I think that that is a hard one to do because even when I was a kid, this is like the kind of back and forth my mom and I had in the give and take of, um, you know, how do you go and handle devices in the household? So, I mean, she had, you know, strict control over the computer with passcodes and, um, you know, she had restrictions that she installed from the internet service provider to not let people go and access, you know, uh, pornography websites or other kinds of things that she did on her side. Admittedly, she was a very dedicated mother, so made for a very fun banter between her and I growing up. But not every parent has the ability to always do that kind of level of investment. Um, and again, I think that really what it comes down to is that, you know, uh, just have those conversations with your kids up front. Try to have an open door with them in terms of uh, explaining that. But also don't give them the device completely unfiltered. There are other things that you can do, right? Like my mom didn't give me a phone with texting on it when I first was getting into that stuff. Um, because she didn't want me to have that. Uh, she didn't want me being up all night texting all night. She wanted me to get my schoolwork done. Like, there are little things that you can do. There are kid-oriented phones, like Gap, um, that do not have those kinds of risks that are associated with an iPhone. And then, like I said, three, the other stuff, it is actually kind of easier than I think people realize to go and get those kinds of filters and devices uh, for control over your kids' devices. Um, you know, Apple's family settings are easy to access and not too hard to set up. You can even Google it, and there's YouTube videos that show you how to do that. So um, I think that those are the kinds of amazing things that parents can go and do. But I'm not going to let the companies off the hook either. Like, this is something that they should be partnering with local local communities and organizations with um, to go and explain how their products work so that they can go and connect with these parents that are not online all the time to understand and, and show them how to go and use these these, um, these safety tools that they have for parents so that they can go and have a, a more tailored online experience for their child. But I do think that, again, just to reiterate, I think the thing that we do not want to see is have the state go in and come and play the role of mom and dad and dictate how a kid's online experience should be in terms of what they see and how they go and experience online. Um, because it has long, long-reaching effects. You kind of mentioned how algorithms play a role in search and everything else that we see and do. Like, that's the kind of implication that you're talking about here. So, again, I think we have to be very careful before we empower the government to go after these companies uh, for things that have, on average, actually been a net positive for your user online experience. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and you know, it it's all comes down to a matter of, of perspective, levels of engagement, how how hard you're willing to work. I don't think that any of us would uh, would argue that our lives had not been improved tremendously by the advent of technology. I mean, you know, as, as old as radio is, the methodology by which you and I are communicating right now for this broadcast to happen involves all kinds of, of zeros and ones, right? And so we all benefit from from technology, and yet I think it comes down to a matter of how we engage it, um, how we use it, and whether or not we control it or we allow it to control us. And maybe therein lies the real challenge, that it, it requires a deft touch by parents, and it isn't a case of you get to be involved, it's you have to be involved. You have to get educated, and you have to educate your children in turn, because like it or not, this is the world in which we live, and you're not going once, to, once you've torn open that feather pillow, uh, James, we're never going to try to uh, successfully stuff all the feathers back in again. So if this is the hand we are dealt, I think maybe one of the big steps to here to help kids better step away from and not allow them to be manipulated by the technology or social media in the first place is to better educate them. Yes, absolutely. I think you're 100% right. And, you know, I think that this is something that, uh, you know, will go and evolve over time. It's the same kind of conversation that we're having around artificial intelligence in many ways, right? Because artificial intelligence uh, poses the same kind of ability to go and sow confusion and, and, and mislead people, etc., um, and show them things in a different way than they might not otherwise be thinking about it, right? So, again, it's an important conversation that we have to have. I think that um, you know, again, if we're talking about kids and getting better uh, access to mental health resources so that way they can go and sort through, um, you know, the challenges that they're facing. Some of it is social media driven and so far as like online cyberbullying has always been an issue. But frankly, so has offline cyber like bullying has been an issue. I remember getting bullied in high school. These things happen, right? So it's about being diligent. And also, I think one last thing I'll, I'll add, too, is let's go and make sure that we're actually increasing opportunities for kids to be participating in activities that require them to be outdoors and doing some things, right? One one study I remember looking at not too long ago was saying that the amount of time that kids were spending outside has actually declined quite drastically in the past decade or so. And that's very unfortunate because, you know, I think that having those intramurals, having football and, and baseball and basketball like I was playing uh, growing up, is a great way of actually disconnecting you from technology and forcing you to interact with the world that's around you in a way that, you know, you otherwise wouldn't, right? Whether that's doing those kinds of things or going to church. Like, there are a litany of offline things that you can do to connect with the people and the world around you and that we should be looking for identifying and embracing those opportunities as they present themselves. And ironically enough, that also includes a lot of the parents, too, who I think need to have enough wisdom to know when to step back from the, the social media and turn the cell phone off, turn the computer off, and uh, get engaged in different manners one-on-one. -on -one. James Chernowski, Senior Policy Analyst in Technology and Innovation at Americans for Prosperity. Information available on the web, americansforprosperity.org. James Chernowski, thanks so much for the time and the insights. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, given the staggering amount of challenges that the average Californian is facing economically these days, what with the cost of taxes and the high cost of rent or mortgage payments, things of that sort, you would think that the state at the very least would recognize that those families who are literally living on the edge, that everything would be done to make sure that we are doing the most to provide them with the basics of life. For example, a kid going to school, getting a warm, hot meal every day. Seems to make sense, doesn't it? Feeding the underprivileged versus progressive ideology. Now, in a state like California, if it was a choice between the two, feeding the underprivileged or progressive ideology, which do you think might win? Dean Broyles joins us, chief counsel and president of the National Center for Law and Policy, pulls back the curtain on some actions by the California Department of Social Services and our attorney general's office on this very topic. And, counselor, thank you so much for speaking, uh, spending some time with us today. Uh, you would hope that the state would decide in favor of kids and uh, underprivileged families, but apparently in this case, particularly as it relates to a, a Christian school down in El Cajon, uh, uh, the winner was not the underprivileged kids. Yeah, not uh, great to be with you, by the way. Not originally. I mean, at first, the California Department of Social Services was um, requiring uh, non-discrimination policy compliance. And originally, the church and preschool didn't have a problem with it. But after the Biden administration started interpreting sex to include sexual orientation, gender identity, in the last few years, um, the Biden administration actually got sued in Florida and lost about a year or two ago. But this California Department of Social Services, the Newsom administration, decided, hey, let's impose that anyway, even though the feds lost that argument. Let's impose that on USDA food program monies flowing through California, through the Department of Social Services, to a really wonderful church and preschool in El Cajon. And so that's that that conflict is how it got started. And pretty insane in this arena. I mean, to begin with, I think we ought to be able to separate the, 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 the religiosity or the ideology or the matter of opinion from the needs taking place. And to essentially deprive this church ministry from access to the child and adult food care program that is in place to help kids that are needy simply because you have a church that's exercising its own opinion um, on, on matters related to their hiring policies, restroom regulations, dress codes, uh, things of that sort, and to insist that, no, in spite of what your belief system may be, we're not going to worry about the dynamic related to feeding kids. We're going to worry about the fact that your ideology doesn't match ours, and so we're either going to force you to comply or we're going to punish the kids. I mean, that effectively was even the position taken by the AG's office, was it not? Yeah, originally that's certainly true. Um, when we got involved, I mean, it, it's been a really real honor to represent this small church. The, the, it's a great story, actually. The Church of Compassion um, is the name of the church, ironically, and um, they have been serving their community, meeting the needs and loving people and showing the love of Jesus in their community for over 20 years. And over 40% of their enrollees come from families who are below the poverty line. And a very high percentage of, of families in El Cajon, including those who attend the school, 
are um, recent immigrants from all over the world. It's a it's a heavy immigrant community. A lot of people below the poverty line, and so they've been scholarshipping and loving these kids and feeding these kids for 20 years, and um, until um, the radical sexual ideology uh, was was imposed on the church by the California Department of Social Services, and originally. Um, we warned the CDSS um, uh, in, in correspondence that their their view of the uh, of the law was wrong. That the First Amendment actually superseded any sexual orientation and gender identity non discrimination provisions because the church has the right under the free exercise clause of the U.S. Constitution to um, maintain its religious beliefs on human sexuality and its orthodox biblical beliefs on on people's uh, on gender and, and human sexuality. And um, also, um, they have the right under the free speech clause um, to, to speak and live out um, their beliefs in action. And so we warned them. We said, hey, you better not cut off the funds. But they didn't listen. They cut off the funds starting in um, December, end of December of 2022. Uh, uh, um, and and for for all of all of last year, um, they they didn't have their money. While well, we we started the litigation, and we actually warned the dis, uh, the, uh, the Bonta DOJ that they were going to end up losing the case and paying more attorney's fees the longer they waited to resolve it. And so we we actually got a, a victory before we even got 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 a judge to hear the case. We filed a motion for preliminary injunction. Um, and amended the complaint to include the USDA, the, uh, uh, Director Johnson, and the USDA, federal USDA. And um, within a few weeks of receiving our amended complaint and motion for preliminary injunction, uh, the DOJ called us up and did what I knew they were going to do and, and uh, said we want to settle the case. So it was a complete victory for religious freedom and the right to really to resist Orwellian government overreach. Yeah, particularly in this case, again, where the the mixture of the ideology and tying that into meeting the needs of, of the students should never have been. And the irony is, this wasn't an argument from the get-go that, oh, well, you can't participate because you're a, uh, a religious school. They, in fact, had been participating in the program, no worries, no issues at all, until they decided, oh, no, because of the issue related to largely gender dysphoria these days, we're uh, we're gonna we're gonna use this as a means of of pushing this direction of ideology and effectively not just punish the school, punish the church, but punish the kids if they didn't play ball. Well, that was the position that apparently the uh, the AG's office supported, and I understand that your organization was able to obtain a victory in the court and and even um, get the the uh, the state of California to settle financially. Yeah, and it's really a win, and part of what we want people to know, it's not just a win for this school and this church. It's a win for any religious organization or church or house of worship, uh, even of non-Christian or other religions, um, to live out their beliefs and faith according to their will um, without being forced by the government to to uh, change their beliefs and practices. And so what happened is we got a complete win. We um, the, They're getting all their back pay or their back uh, funding that was cut off. And the initial payment was about thirty to 40000 There'll be another twenty to 30000 coming in the next few weeks. 
Um, we've got all of our attorney's fees, $160,000 in attorney's fees. And so the total settlement uh, in the end will be probably approaching $250,000. It's around 200000 right now. Um, but even better, we got the state of California to say, to acknowledge in their application forms for participating uh, ministries and churches to acknowledge that there is a religious exception to the sexual orientation and gender identity non-discrimination provisions. So we changed it not just for uh, this small church in El Cajon and the preschool, but we change it for all religious organizations across the state of California. Well, you, you love it when it has that kind of uh, uh, local impact that's able to spread across the state. Uh, well, congratulations on the win in this case, and uh, I understand that moving forward, not only will the back funds be restored, but then they will be able to continue on with the program, um, meeting the needs of uh, uh, kids there at El Cajon Christian School. Is that correct? Yeah, they'll be able to continue on. And one, one of the nasty things that the California Department of Social Services did is they not only canceled their food program application and their participation, but they put them on what we call the national naughty list or the national disqualified list. And so they couldn't get any federal or state funds from any other programs. And so one of the things that was reversed is also they were taken off the national disqualified list. So, um, you know, there's a win we mentioned earlier in Florida against the feds. Now there's a win in California against uh, uh, the state. And um, really, this applies to the entire United States. If any um, churches or schools across the U.S. are being harassed about their religious beliefs and practices, if they're getting federal funding, there's there's mechanisms and a way to push back now and to protect religious liberty across the United States. All right. That, that's good news. And certainly for anyone that's eavesdropping on our conversation tonight that says, well, wait a minute, our, our local church here is is facing similar challenges. Uh, there's uh, there's good news and a little relief. Uh, Dean, finally, for folks that want to find out more about the National Center for Law and Policy, how can they find you on the Web? Yeah, it's it's pretty simple. It's our, our our name as an acronym. It's N as in Nancy, C as in Cat, L as in Lemus, P as in Paul. So nclplaw.org, and you can find our press release and more details about the case there. NCL Law, NCLP Law, NCLP, think National Center Law and Policy, nclplaw.org. Our thanks to Dean Boyles, Chief Counsel and President of the National Center for Law and Policy, for that update. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, you'd think after that we'd be done with the topic of gender dysphoria, but you'd be wrong. There's another arena where most recently, and we're going to get some insight in just a moment from Brad Dacus on this, but most recently the United States Supreme Court, for whatever the motivation, has allowed a lower court ruling to stand allowing transgender students in Indiana to access school restrooms and locker rooms consistent with their gender 
identity that as of Tuesday. The Supreme Court, at least for the moment, refusing to take up this case, and it is passed on similar cases. Why so? Some insights now. Constitutional lawyer, founder, and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Counselor, thank you so much for being with us today. As you look at this case, and I mentioned about the fact that there have been others that have gone to the court, but they have refused to uh, to weigh in. Why do you think this is? Uh, is it the case where the court doesn't want to intervene, or is it a case where they're fearful of intervening, or is it just a matter of the correct case has not really come before them yet? Yeah, I think it's uh, principally the latter. Um, I think the Supreme Court is looking for a set of facts where uh, you have uh, individuals who have been directly impacted. So it's not just a matter of the policy being bad, uh, but it's the actual application of it and the impact it has on, say, uh, girls in the locker room, for example, uh, and the direct threat and them being impacted by it. Uh, this these has uh, predominantly been really focused on actually also the bathrooms, um, which are not as um, you know as dramatic as say, a locker room. Uh, they still be very dangerous bathrooms and having the opposite gender there and the stall next to it can be very, very, very problematic, obviously. But uh, a locker room is just a blatant uh, exhibitionalism, which is uh, which is criminal in every sense of the word. But um, so that's why I think that the court has to take it up. Also, we will probably see some conflicting case law as well from the lower courts. And that sort of compels the court also to take it up when there's compelling case law, and then they can choose which case they think is the best for um, resolving the issue and decisively. To your knowledge, is this sort of split, meaning that some lower courts have ruled one way and other cases ruled another way, and so certain parts of the country are allowing this um, pick-a-restroom sort of uh, approach where others are saying, no, you have to use the one that matches your birth identity? Right, and there is, a, and there is a, some, some conflicting case law, um, and as that makes it up to, to, the, to the circuit level, I think we're going to see uh, the Supreme Court then be compelled to take it on. It's not a question if they will take it up, it's just a matter of when, in which case. Um, and we've seen this before, and sometimes I'll tell you it's, it's sort of frustrating, because I'm thinking like, oh, why did they take up this case X, Y, and Z, and just, you know, take care of this. But then, you know, time passes and and uh, the right case comes up and they're able to hit the hit it out of the ballpark. I am still confident that this Supreme Court will do the right thing um, in terms of both uh, the rights of, the, for example, of, of, of teachers not to have to compromise their faith pursuant to Title VII, but also the rights of parents over their children um, and the, the, just the, the ability for a child, even under privacy, not to be visually violated on a regular basis sporadically um, because they, they attend a, a public school that they're required to attend. Well, and, and you've raised a very important point that this goes beyond simple access to uh, gym or bathrooms. Uh, certainly the issue of sports participation uh, has been one that we're hearing talked about, uh, even in relationship to the upcoming Olympics in, uh, where are they going to be, I think, Paris, um, and, and questions of, you know, <laughs> the, the unfairness, the imbalance of the scales where you have someone who um, was born a boy who now wishes to participate 
participate as a woman. Um, and, you know, for those of us that believe in science are going to recognize that there are differences in terms of stamina and strength between the two genders. That's not putting anybody down. That's just reality. And uh, affording an individual who has crossed over, so to speak, may provide a unfair advantage. But the other broader issue here, and this is one that I've argued since the very get-go, and that is what we're doing at the the elementary, middle school, and high school, and even collegiate level, where we're forcing students to have to tolerate this, and the not only the degree of uncomfortableness or awkwardness that it creates, but the other thing, too, is I know that there's some point going to be a case where there is sexual assault, and I feel as if we will potentially have opened the door to this because, you know, some 14, 15-year-old boy just uh, discovering the opposite sex decides, I know how I can get in and check out the girls in the girls' locker room. I'm just going to go in and tell them that I identify as a female. I mean, it, it's abhorrent. Yeah, it's, it's so easy to happen, and there's, there's, no, uh, there's no way of testing it um, within these kind of situations. Uh, the good news is that one thing we're doing at Pacific Justice is not only being willing to represent individuals in these situations, but uh, we're actually going farther upstream, and we're doing a lot of work with state legislatures. We've personally worked with six states to get them to adopt legislation addressing this issue, and uh, we're continuing to work with states to adopt, predominantly red states or freedom-loving states, to adopt this kind of legislation uh, to uh, protect uh, boys and girls in locker rooms and as well as athletic competition. Yeah, I didn't mean to uh, or want to embarrass you by asking, how's that working out in California? But <laughs> I think we all know what an uphill yeah. battle that is. Yes. Um, yes, it is a very major uphill battle. And uh, so uh, but God, God does miracles. So whether it's through revival or something, uh, you know, out of nature, I don't know. But we're uh, I'm so hopeful. And uh, we're we have seven offices here in California doing all our work without charge. So if anyone needs help. We're not giving up, and they should never hesitate to contact us at PJI. Absolutely. Well, Counselor, we always appreciate not only the updates, but the fine and incredible work that you do on behalf of people of faith and uh, freedom-loving Americans all across not just the state, but the country as well. Brad Dake is founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. If um, something we've mentioned here today resonates with you, you say, you know, wait a minute, I, I, I know of a family that's dealing with a challenge. Or my son or daughter came home and said, Mom, Dad, you won't believe what's going on at school. Give them a call. Pacific Justice Institute. You can reach them online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. Our thanks to Brad Dake as founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute for that update. And uh, we'll just have to continue to keep an eye on the high court and see in what direction they lead things when eventually they uh, they do in, indeed agree to hear one of these cases and, uh, and make a final final decision all right we're going to take a time out we're going to come back with more come out up around the corner it is our church of the week we'll get a chance to meet this week's pastor so you stay tuned for that coming up next as lifeline continues for this thursday first day of february back with more after this 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.